Jesus saved me in 1997, in the fall of 1997, and shortly after that, uh, a man started visiting me on campus uh, named Richard Carwile, and I've shared lots of stories about Richard. Um, he is the pastor now of Bloomfield Baptist, and uh, he was a mentor and discipler of me and uh, Jonathan Vanderpool, who's a member here at Mission, and Richard is the pastor and friend and mentor who Jonathan just donated his uh, kidney to. And uh, when I was in college as a new believer, I went to this weekly Bible study with other young men. And Richard was our Bible study leader. He was our discipler. He was our mentor. He taught us the ways of Jesus and how to obey and to, to learn the word of God. And as part of that, uh, one of the very first passages I was ever challenged to memorize was actually uh, Psalm chapter 1 that I've just read to you. And so from that moment in time, it has always held a very special special place within my heart and even memory, as I'm sharing that memory uh, with you right now, is that from my discipler, from uh, someone who I really care a whole lot about, uh, that he saw the, the value and importance of not just memorizing this passage of Scripture, but memorizing Scripture so that when we are engaging and having uh, moments and seasons of difficulty or need encouragement on certain things, that we can not just from reading it, but from our very memory, come to these texts. And I can't re remind, I can't tell you enough how many times over the last 20 something years that um, as I've been walking with Jesus, that to my mind has come this very passage. Now, it's always important when we kick off a series on a new book to understand the text and context of the book of Psalms, is that we have a tendency to kind of treat the book of Psalms as just this book that you randomly flip open and then just read a psalm, and either it hits you in the right moment or it doesn't. It either, it either says kind of what you were hoping to say but didn't have the words to say it, or you're like, I have no idea what this poetry is about. Well, we need to understand something is that much like all the other books of the Bible is that there is a flow, that there is a narrative that is being shown within these letters, within these books. And likewise, that is often over, overlooked is that there is a flow and a specific story that is being told as well in the book of Psalms, all right? Now, what we see here is that if you look at the book of Psalms, there's 150 of them inside of that. Many of them are written by a guy named David. Many of, even if you've not been to church or, or not a Christian, you've probably heard the story of David and Goliath. Well, that guy who fought that giant eventually becomes king, but he was known as being kind of this harpist. He was a, a, an interesting renaissance man. He's somebody that I, I maybe try to pattern my life around, is that he, he was a hunter a shepherd, but he also knew how to play an instrument. He loved the arts, all right? So he's a poet, a songwriter as well. He eventually becomes king, an unlikely king, and yet he's God's chosen man. Seventy-three of these psalms are attributed to, um, to King David, or to David, along with other writers that we see. Not all of them are from David, but many of them are from this man named David. But they are compiled over years and years and years within Jewish history, um, compiled by these Jewish people in order to create this book of poetry or this book of hymns. 
Not all of them are songs. Some of them are. Some of them are not. There can be laments. They can be poems. They can be songs. But they were strategically placed, not in a chronological order, but in a way in which tells a story. And we often forget that whenever we're reading through the Psalms. Is that if you were to look inside of this, you'll notice even as I said this on purpose and inside of your Bible translation, it probably says book one before Psalm one. Why is that? Well, in those 150 Psalms, it's, it's compiled and they're divided up into five different books. And those are on purpose. Essentially, um, the first several books or, or, or chapters are uh, about kind of the rise of David, all right? And, and, the, and the, the struggles that are happening, not only within David's own heart, but also within David's family. And then there's kind of a middle section that is more specific to actually the people of Israel and the, how they have drifted from God and the problems that are not only happening within David's life and heart and family, but also within the nation that is Israel, and then there at the end is this, um, this season or these chapters of redemption, all right? So like the last five chapters all end with this hallelujah praise that goes on and on and on and on. And so you see within um, this book called the Psalms that there are actually five books that make up this Poetry, these hymns, these songs, these laments. And there is a rise and fall and redemption. And isn't that the story of all of Scripture? We see a rise, we see a fall, and we see redemption. A lot of scholarship has gone into kind of understanding how this was all put together. And, and one of those things that's important to see is that, that we see within the Scripture kind of over and over again this repetitive nature of understanding Genesis followed again by the fall and then redemptive history. And we see that again even within this first book or even this first chapter as chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Psalms provide the introduction to the rest of of the books, all right? They were put there by those who compiled it for us to understand that if you do not get chapter one and chapter two, then you're not gonna understand the rest of this letter. That's why it can sometimes be dangerous if you don't read the rest of the chapters in view of chapter one and verse two as it's setting up. This is the introduction to all of these songs, to all of these hymns, to all of these laments, to understand this pattern of rise, fall, and redemption and praise, hallelujah, You've got to understand chapter 1 and chapter 2. So today we're looking at chapter 1, and then next week we'll begin in chapter 2. But much like the book of Genesis, also if you're familiar with the New Testament, the, the Gospel of John, is that there's this whole Genesis feel to it. And likewise, we see that in Psalm chapter 1. What do we see? We see blessedness. We see trees. We see water. We see life. We see separation, Right? So in Genesis, in the book of Psalm, and in the book of John, and we see this pattern over and over and over in Scripture, as we see this, these attributes and this connection from the people and the people of God to their God. And it was compiled in order to lead us to a place of worship. We need to understand that these poems were written, these songs were written, not when, when people and things were going good, but rather the opposite of good. Things were going really bad. 
We call these people, the Israelites, the followers of God, that they're essentially living in exile. And so when David's writing, he's longing to be in the presence of God because, again, when he's writing, the temple hasn't been built yet. And yet he longs to be in the temple, in the presence of God. And so a lot of the Psalms will lead us to that very thing, and that he's longing to be in this presence with God. We also will see over and over this pattern of the value of the Word of God. We'll see some of that today. Also, we will see very early on this expectation of Messiah, of King, of Savior that is to come. We will see this over and over and over and over again. We see that within these scriptures, and even as we'll see here today, that throughout the the Bible, we see this constant contrast taking place. That a lot of times the Bible will talk about light, and it'll talk about darkness. It'll talk about good, and it talks about evil, right? It'll talk about sheep, and it'll talk about goats. It'll talk about the blessed and the wicked, and that's where the psalm is leading us here today. If we come back to our text, it says at the very beginning here, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So what we see here at the very beginning of these passages in verses 1 and 2, as we're seeing described before us, essentially two different types of readers of all of these psalms. And even deeper than that, two different types of people. We, two, we see two different types of identities that are expounded upon at the very beginning. When you read this letter or when you experience life, you are either doing so as a blessed person, a sheep, or you're doing it as a wicked person, a goat. You're doing so as either one that is in the light or you're doing so as one that is in darkness. And the Bible is clear from the very beginning that it's laying before us two identities. And this passage of Scripture was not lead the people into negativity, but rather would have been considered and is, is specifically placed by the sovereignty of God at the very beginning of this to be an encouragement to lift up the people of God to what is about to take place as they read and as they pray these psalms or even possibly sing them. We see here, if you're taking notes, in your own Bible, that you should circle, square, put a star by the word blessed. That one of the identities that we see is a blessed man or blessed woman. Now, this goes way beyond what you see on a coffee mug or somebody's t-shirt that says, I'm too blessed to be stressed, all right? That's not what the Bible is talking about here. But it goes much deeper than just this idea of being blessed, What is the Hebrew meaning of this? The the original Bible in the Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language. And so this specific word for the meaning of blessed is extremely important for you and I to understand. Blessed here means completeness. completeness. It means to be fully satisfied. It means to be joy-filled, fall-filled. It means happiness beyond your current circumstance. In the original Hebrew of verse 1 of Psalm 1, it essentially, it's really bad for you English people, which I'm not one, but it's really bad for English to understand this because it is in the plural form. It's essentially saying, um, blessed and blessed, blessed, 
All right? It's, it's showing the extent of being overtly fulfilled. Like, it's, it's, it's a really interesting, again, it's hard for us to translate into English, um, the blessedness of what is being said here. Okay? It's about this idea, again, of complete uh, just fulfillment, completely satisfied. But remember, this isn't something that you and I can accomplish. This is an identity of this person. It, it means that one's circumstance, one's depression, one's grief, one's pain, one's sorrow does not remove the position that one is called blessed. From God's perspective, in his sovereign grace, in his sovereign election, that he has bestowed upon people who were once his enemies, and he righteously from his throne declares, this person is blessed. They are the blessed ones. This is not something that you can accomplish or that I can accomplish, but rather it is a positional blessedness that refers to their identity. For example, I am a son, I am husband, I am father, I am pastor, I am follower of Jesus, I am blessed. This is a marker on people. Blessed is this man, fulfilled is this woman. She is completely not on her circumstance, but rather in a position that God has decreed about him or her that they rest secure in their circumstances, no matter what is happening around them. Why? Because God has determined that they are the blessed one. This is a great distinction in, um, from our common use of just calling it happiness, you know, American happiness, the pursuit of happiness, is something that is very circumstantial, is it not? That is constantly, um, you know, wavering back and forth, depending on what is happening inside of your life. And the Bible isn't saying that if you're going through major grief, depression, stress, anxiety, that you're pretending like everything is just okay. That's not what blessedness is saying. No, it's saying in the midst of your love being ripped from your arms, in the midst of death, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of your great grief as you are crying out to God, do not forget, brothers and sisters, you, from his perspective, are the blessed ones. In your darkest of night, it does not change the fact, for those of us who are in Christ, that you are still blessed. You are the blessed ones, not based upon your goodness or how well you obeyed, but rather by the, the perfect determination of an almighty, sovereign God. The king has said, you are son, no matter what. You are daughter, no matter what. A blessed person is blessed even in during adverse circumstances. The Hebrew word here is specific to the blessing that comes from God 
to mankind. And there's another passage or another language within, or within Hebrew language where we bless God. That's, that's a different word. That's something we do toward someone else. That's something we do toward God. That's not what the Hebrew word here is. It is being dictated from God's sovereign throne room down to us. Blessedness is not, again, something that can be earned. It's not even something that can be deserved. It is a gift from God. Outside of God's blessedness, you are cursed, and rightfully so. We are reminded in the book of Romans chapter 8, it explains that nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? Neither death, no principalities, no rulers, all these things that we see in Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from God's love. Likewise, once God has decreed that you are blessed, then you are blessed indeed. Nothing can separate you from God's eternal blessedness upon you if you are in Christ. What a beautiful way to start out this book of hymns, this book of poetry. The, the blessedness, of one, as one commentator explains, enables a person to disassociate with the wicked and associate with God. Because he has deemed us, no matter what we have done, as being the blessed one, then what does that do? It reconciles us to God. Then we've been separating him from our sin, right? And yet when he looks upon us and decrees that those of us who are in Christ are blessed ones, then we can be reconciled to God. But in reconciled to God, what does it also cause? It causes separation from sin and wickedness and those who practice such things. We see this as we go on in this passage. Notice here, it says, blessed is the man, complete is the man, satisfied is the man who who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Notice this progression. Look at your Bibles. Notice this progression that we see inside this passage, that the blessed man is separate from the way that the wicked live their lives. And we see these action points taking place, this picture that happens when you and I or when people are engaged in sinful activity, that there is a, notice the progression of one who is walking. They are walking in the counsel of the wicked. Now, if you've ever been a parent of a teenager, you can go back to uh, uh, when I was in, in the 80s child. Remember when D.A.R.E. came out for you old people? All right. It's this big whole thing to dare to keep kids off of drugs, right? I think uh, Nancy Reagan was a big supporter behind this movement of the 80s. Everybody had dare shirts, right? Remember those? And we were constantly being told at school and by our parents, hey, you got to be careful who you hang out with. Parents, you ever been there? Hey, you're starting to act like so-and-so. Right? You got to be careful who your peers are. Why? Because young people will, will lack, are often uh, more likely to leave the wisdom of their parents or people who are further down the road in order to what? Seek the wisdom of people who are like them, who are in the same ditch they're getting advice from. Those are terrible people to get advice from. But we see this taking place all the time. So we see that this shoulder-to-shoulder activity of the wicked is that they're walking 
with other people who are wicked. And so when things are taking place, when they're needing help, they're not thinking about God. They're getting help and, and encouragement from who? From the wicked. They are walking alongside of them. The culture, the masses are all heading in this way, and the wicked walk with those people. But notice what happens. They eventually stop walking, right? Because this is movement to the place where they're standing still. This is more of a determined place. This is going with culture. But now, we not only, we will stand the ground with who? With the sinners. We move from walking to standing with them. Standing firm. We hold the line. The wicked hold the line for evil. And then eventually, someone will not just walk with, not just stand with, but we sit with. Now, I know none of you in here have done this, but I've done this. I've sat with people and plotted evil things to do. Have you? No, not you. But I have. Let me paint this picture to go back to something that we've been talking some about, all right? Let's talk some just briefly. You can label this sin whatever you wanted to put it, all right? So the culture, you're walking around. All right, you're walking with the culture. Oh, there is a beautiful woman, all right? You just keep going. There is a beautiful man. There's a way to make money. There's what, fill in the blank, whatever sin you want. But you're just walking with it. It's a part of the culture, right? You're at the gym. You see some beautiful woman, see some handsome guy. You're walking out. You're on the computer, no matter what. It's like, man, that, that's a beautiful person, okay? But then there's the stopping, And dwelling on it. That's the standing. And then the sitting is the participating in it. We see this progression of the walk, the stand, and the sitting. So there's this blessed person. Again, we're seeing two identities here. We're seeing the blessed person. They are strong in God. If, they're, if they are in God, if he has decreed that this man, this woman is blessed, then that is the opposite thing that is taking place inside the wicked. Where can we find the wicked? Man, they are walking, standing, and sitting in evil and sin. They're not thinking about God. They're not pursuing after God. Man, they're in this big club together, and they're going this way, and we see this taking place all the time with people who claim to be followers of Jesus, and yet they are listening to the counsel of the evil ones. They're listening to the counsel of the, the wicked. You ever met someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, but then they like to uh, silo where their faith belongs? I'm a Christian as long as it's just in this silo. You know, like silo, big country thing, it holds grain, you know what I'm talking about? But Jesus, man, you can't, you can't be the Lord over my politics. That's when I stop being a Christian. Is how I see this. I believe the Bible here, but Jesus, as soon as you step into this realm of my life, nah, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. Or Jesus, I'm, I'm cool. Yes, man, when it comes to this sin or this thing in my life or this, this perspective within culture, it's like, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with this one, but I'm, I'm not cool with that. I'm just going to go with the counsel of the wicked. I'm going to stand with them. I'm going to walk with them. I'm going to rejoice in this sinful mentality. Man, this is the antithesis. That means the opposite of what we see in the blessed man 
and the blessed woman. Why? Because he tells us here in verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Now that word law there, circle it, box it, star it. We have a tendency when we see the word law, some of y'all are adverse to laws. It's like, I'm going to do the exact opposite of what the law says, i.e., there's a burn ban in Bowling Green, but people were doing the 4th of July, World War III in my neighborhood last night. Joe Imel was real busy on Twitter. So was our police station and our sheriff's station run all over town trying to tell people to stop because they're going to burn down all our houses, right? So you see the word law, and y'all are like automatically, man, I hate laws, I see a policeman, they're pigs. I hate policemen. They're just out to get me, right? The word law here isn't a bad word. Again, this first psalm is meant as an encouragement. It means instruction. It means the teaching. Oftentimes, it refers to the Torah. If you want to sound really intelligent, you add a little Klingon to the end of that, Torah, and it sounds, it makes you sound like you even more know what you're talking about, all right? But the, the, the instructions of God, it means the whole counsel of God's word. See, something different um, that is lacking in our faith in this modern time is that, that many people don't believe that this is actually the word of God. If you want to hear the words of Almighty God, then read some of these passages of Scripture out loud, and you're going to hear from God himself. Because why? From Genesis to Revelation, this is the infallible word of God. And so while the wicked are following their own way of living, how is the blessed man? He is delighting in the teaching, in the instruction of the Lord. The wicked do not submit to God and to his teaching. We see this all the time again in our culture. We'll have people, follower, people who claim to be followers of Christ, people who profess to be Christians, but they do not believe or practice what the Bible teaches. We want Christianity void of God's word. Somewhere along the way, we have lost our way to use the term. We have drifted away from the very words of God, that this is from God to us, that as the blessed people, he has given us his word. The Bible tells us here that but the godly man, the godly woman is blessed Why? Because they are completely dependent on the very word of God. The blessed man, the blessed woman, loves the word of God. I'm going to be really frank. I can't imagine going very long. Um, Actually, I can, and it's always led to bad times in my life. Desert moments, if you will. When my personal Bible reading has been inconsistent. Those desert moments those parched moments in my relationship with God. And if I do self-evaluation, I often can always come back to, man, what does my prayer life look like? What, what does the, the reading of God's word look like? I, I can never imagine skipping out on, on weeks of not being in church. Because it's very reflective of, we don't really need the word. 
We've got other things. It's the counsel of the wicked. We can, we can be over here just walking with the culture. Man, I profess Jesus, but man, I don't know anything about his word, and, and I'm not devoted to his word. I don't delight in his word, and yet the blessed man, the blessed woman, where do they find themselves delighting in it? They crave it. Oftentimes within the Old Testament and inside of Jewish understanding is that not everybody had the Bible. I mean, you have infinite amount of translations of the Bible on your device in front of you right now. And yet, in ancient times, there was typically one version of the Old Testament on a scroll um, in the entire city. There are stories amongst Jewish people that when they would get it out, they would often get it out to show in kids the Word of God. And simultaneously, they would hand kids like a little, little taste of honey whenever they brought the word of God. Because the Bible would often describe as the word of God is like sweetness. It's like sweet honey on their lips. Oftentimes, there are stories of people when they would get out the scroll, when they would show the word of God, that people would, would come up and that they would kiss their hands, and then they would place those kissed hands on the word of God. That's how they viewed the word of God. They truly believed, man, this is God's holy word. We are blessed if we delight in this word. And yet many of us don't even think enough to make it a priority to, to engage with it or to have it or to, to read it. And, and I say that not in, in any way to try to, to, to guilt you. It's just that the reality of, man, this, that's, a, that's a very wicked way to live. And yet if we're in Christ, we're the blessed ones. We've been giving this, the believer's delight in knowing and studying and, and memorizing and obeying God's holy word. Because shouldn't there be more like-mindedness amongst those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, who claim to be the blessed ones of God? But it often doesn't happen. Why? Because our delight is not. We're not students of it. We don't delight in obeying it. And yet, what does this blessed person do? On his law, he meditates day and night. That isn't some Eastern religion idea of you doing the dog pose and thinking about Scripture. It's rather that you're so immersed in the Scripture that as you make chicken sandwiches at Chick-fil-A, as you teach young people, as you do your job as you're a homemaker, as you mow people's grass, as you weed eat, as you do whatever it's you're doing, is that as you're experiencing life in the mundane things of life, is that the scripture is constantly coming to your mind. It is your anchor to the soul, that you're delighting in these things, that the blessed person sees these things in view of the gospel. What a blessing it is to be on this side of the cross and resurrection because if you ever come to the scripture with the gospel lenses off, all you will see is a book of do's and don'ts. But if you and I come to the scripture and delight in it with the view of Christ, the view of the gospel, then we see the grand narrative all together that from Genesis to Revelation, that it is all showing us how in desperate need we are of Jesus. What is the results? Verse 3 and 4. 
of these identities. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And then how do the wicked respond? The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The wind drives away. The man who is blessed, the man who does not walk and stand and sit in the way of the wicked, the man or woman who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on him day and night, and his word day and night is like a tree that is planted, meaning that it's probably moved from a desert place to a luscious place. Now, I used to live in the desert, and the decays can back this up. In Arizona, it's a desert. And what's always interesting about it is you always know where water is. I've been to Niger, Africa, and it's the same way. You go from this dirt, cracked earth to luscious green life. And if you follow that luscious green life, you know what's there and why it's luscious in those areas is because there is living water. The living water of God is flowing through that. And naturally, what begins to happen? Trees begin to grow. Grass begins to grow. Plants begin to grow. Why? Because that is where the life-giving source is. That's where it's at. It is an oasis in the desert. And friends, for those of us who are in Christ, we live as exiles in a culture and in a world that is a desert. And and yet, in the middle of that is this great oasis that is the blessedness of God, the Word of God. And when Jesus saves us, he plants us next to that living water that is, is not producing within ourselves. We cannot produce within ourselves our own ability to live and to strive, and yet when the water is given to us, we grow, we produce fruit. Anybody's yard brown right now? Some of your grass is dead, but did you know that all your grass right now in Kentucky isn't dead? Fescue, if you have that. Not that Bermuda stuff. That's not grass. That's a weed. If you got grass, it's really brown right now. You know why? Because of the lack of water, it goes into what's called, it's dormant. It has the appearance of death to, in an attempt to survive. But as soon as you start watering that fescue, you know what's going to happen? It's going to come back green. My neighbor, I love him. If you're watching Daniel, he's been watering one section of his yard. So one section is green, and the rest of it is a brown desert mess. Why? Because the living water has not touched that. Some of you are in des- desert places spiritually. And it's because you have distanced yourself from the water of life, from the watering of his word. Living in Arizona and gone to Niger, Africa, I've seen tumbleweeds. Those things are real. They will get big. 
they will knock you over. Many people in our world and even in the church are, are like a tumblebee being tossed to and fro by the wind. And yet, what does the Bible say? It is, blessed is the man who is firmly planted by the water. So that, that the wind blows and the, the storm rages. And, and there is no doubt that in your life, as, as the storms and the circumstances of life, as it knocks you down, it, it looks like you are about to break. You cannot take any more. If you are in Christ, you still remain blessed. You still remain in that place. You've been firmly planted. In Ephesians 4, real quick, I think we've got this up on the, the screen. There's this great passage in Ephesians 4, and for the sake of time, I'm going to read only this one verse, but it says in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That if we're not in church, if we're not belonging to a church, if we're not belonging and delighting in God's word, if we don't understand that God has appointed men and women to serve in a variety of capacities, that he's given us his holy word, then our temptation will be, as we're being discipled by the wickedness of the world, we will begin to sound like, talk like, promote, and advocate for wickedness rather than the word of God. Two paths, quickly. Verse 5 and 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We see in this two identities, blessed and wickedness. We see two um, experiences. We see that the, the blessed person will be planted by streams of living water. They will produce fruit upon fruit upon fruit. We, we see that the wicked are not so, that they are like a, a seed that has like a, a husk over it that they would often take and use a, either a winning fork or like a basket. And they, they would take these seeds and to separate the seed, the grain from this husk that is unusable, they would throw it up in the air and the wind would catch it and, and it would take away the chaff and yet the good would remain. But the chaff, the shell, would, would be discarded. Likewise, we, we see that in the blessedness of God, that they are the seed of God. They, they are usable, and yet the chaff, the, the wicked, will be blown away in so much that they would actually experience and will not stand on judgment day. They will not withstand it. But the way of the righteous will. Why? Because it is the way of God. They are rooted in Christ. They are rooted in the word. And it is expressed in their obedience. I love what Pastor Ray Ortland says when he says, What you worship, you will eventually inherit. What you worship, you will eventually inherit. Notice here in this passage, there are no commands. There are no commands in this passage. Go do this. There's none of that in this passage. But rather, this passage poses a question or questions of who are you? Are you the blessed man? The blessed woman? Or are you the wicked? It's not a list of do's or don'ts. It's a, 
diagnostic of your very identity? Are you a lover of God's word? Goes as far as to ask of what path are, are you following? The way of the righteous or the way of the wicked? The ways of Jesus or the ways of this world? Where are you today? Or rather, who or whom are you? Can we see Jesus in this song? Yes. Notice the wicked in this passage are plural. There are many. But the blessed man is singular. The importance of Psalm 1 is seen in the identity of the ideal or the ideal faithful person. It does not take long in the reading of the Psalms to see that David, nor the other authors, nor the people of Israel ever live up to this identity. Psalm 1 reveals that, that we are the wicked one in this passage. We have walked with, we, we have stood with, we have sat with. But it also points to one who is to come, who is the blessed one. We see in Jesus the pleasure of God fulfilled. We see Jesus satisfying God as the faithful one. We, we see him as the blessed one, the completed one, the fully satisfied one. We, we see this in Jesus, that he is the ultimately happy one, that he leads because of his obedience, because of his delight in God's word, and his perfect submission to that, that that leads to the opportunity of both redemption and security for those of us who are found in Jesus, making us courtesy of the blessed one, courtesy of the righteous one, that if you are in Christ this morning, that you too can be the blessed one and the righteous ones. This isn't a call to do harder things. No, it's a... It's the rest and the one who has done all of the hard things. Man, I, I love the Bible. I love talking about the Bible. I love studying the Bible. I, I love deep conversations about the Bible. That is nothing that I would dream up on my own. I hate to read. And yet because of Christ and his mercy upon us, his mercy upon me, his mercy upon you, it is difficult to find hope in these passages unless you understand them through the lens of the gospel so that we might be deeply encouraged by this passage to pursue what? The way of God over against the way of the world. We might say that we are encouraged and empowered to fight the drift. Why? Because we are encouraged to seek to live out the godly wisdom in the midst of a culture that walks, stands, and sits in weakness. And we have seen this bowling to a complete bowling point even in just the last few weeks if you've paid much attention to the news. We, 
Will you walk in the counsel of the wicked or will you stand firm in the midst of chaos, your own personal and cultural chaos? Will you stand in the person and work of Jesus because you are the blessed one? He has done a great work. And because he has done a great work, and it changes our hearts, our minds, our thoughts about the word of God and the way to live. Who are you? And even greater, who is he? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for your understanding in our lives. May you be exalted. May you be lifted high. The blessed one who has made us blessed. The merciful one who has shown us mercy. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This morning we come.